0: Before I get to March birthday shoutouts, I wanted to first announce that I have a meetup coming up. It is March 26th at 6 p.m. at the Icebox in Mobile, Alabama. Josh from True Crime Bullshit as well as Whitney and Melissa from Colts Crimes and Cabernet will be there. And being that I am going there, there will not be an episode next week as I prepare to take some time off, but I did have a scheduled week off where I did release an episode, so I think we're all fair here. So again, no episode next week, but you will see me on March 26th at 6 p.m. in Mobile, Alabama at the Icebox. And with that, I want to do the March birthday shout outs. A very happy birthday to my Patreon supporters, Alex, Barbara, Brandy, Brenda, Ellen, Gretchen, Holly, Jackie, Josephine, Kathleen, Katie, Lee, Linda, Lior, Madeline, Michael, Miranda, Renee, Sue Rose, Tanya, and Tara. Thank you so much for your support. I hope you have an amazing birthday month. As always, I believe in celebrating for as long as possible. Have a slice of cake for me and happy birthday. In 2013, Monique Club traveled from her home in Harvey Bay to Brisbane with friends. They returned, but she never did. When I first spoke with her family nearly two years ago, they had been left in the dark as far as the investigation went. But then an inquest was held, and though they learned more, Monique remains missing. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome to Crimelines if you're new, welcome back if you have been here before. And if you've been with me for a while, you may have seen the title of the episode and thought it sounded familiar. I did cover this case back in May 2020 alongside another case. When I covered the disappearance of Monique Club back then, there wasn't a lot of information out there. I spoke with her family, who told me they were afraid that the police didn't really take the case seriously and they hadn't been given much information. Fast forward a year and a half and a coronial inquest was held in Queensland. The report was released in January, 2022 and I have it since it is public record. A lot more information came out in that report. I initially planned to just do a quick update episode with whatever information was in the report. But when I looked at it, it was so much more information than we had before and it was enough to make an entire episode out of it. So take my older coverage, which was really just tacked onto a larger case and toss it out. We're starting over and taking this case through the timeline for a much fuller picture of what may have happened. The main sources for this episode are those inquest findings and the original interview I did with the family back in 2020. So let's get into it. Monique Club grew up in Harvey Bay, which is a small coastal town in Southern Queensland. She was the second child in a family of six children. Monique was an Indigenous Australian, specifically Botula. The central part of the island of Gari, which was previously known as Fraser Island, is where the Botula people lived, though they also lived along the coastal mainland across from Gari. Archaeological work is still being done to better define the range of their boundaries, but it is believed this was one of the most densely populated areas in Australia pre-colonization between not just the Botula people, but also other indigenous communities. In my last episode on this case, I called Garry Fraser Island because in 2020, that was the legal name for it. But that changed in September 2021 when the island regained the Botula name for it, which means paradise. While decolonizing the names of places has happened before, like Mount McKinley becoming Denali again, and Ayers Rock going back to Uluru, I think the story with the name of Fraser Island is interesting. Because of the impact on the people, it was more severe. Fraser Island was named after Eliza Fraser, who was shipwrecked there after the ship she was on hit a reef On May 21st, 1836, her husband was the captain of that ship. The surviving members of the crew that landed on the island split up to look for help, and at some point, Eliza's husband died, likely due to his injuries. The Botula people took Eliza in, as they had with other white people who had been stranded on the island, sometimes penal colony prisoners who had escaped to the island, Hoping to find freedom. All reports were that they aided people in survival and accepted them. Well, Eliza eventually ended up being found and rescued from the island, and she returned to England. Once there, she gave a very exaggerated account of her time with the Botula, accusing them of being cannibals and murderous people, and said her time with them was a fate worse than death. Never mind that the other survivors of the shipwreck said that her story was false, and never mind that other non-Native people encountering the Botula said the story didn't add up. It fed the narrative of the primitive and dangerous Native. This backed up that doctrine of discovery that we talked about before and was used as justification to kill the Botula people and take their lands. Within 40 years of Eliza Fraser's lie, the Botula people who numbered 2,000 at the time of contact were down to 250, and many were displaced and sent to a reserve. So why did Eliza Fraser tell this story? The answer, from my viewpoint, seems to be money. She did not tell this story for free. And it wasn't the only way she tried to make money off of what had happened. When she returned to England, she asked the government for money to help her support her children, now that she was a widowed mother. She failed to mention that she had already secretly remarried a successful ship captain, and she just didn't think to disclose that she had already received a large amount of money while still in Australia for this exact purpose, to support her children. She was claiming poverty to try to get more money. Eliza saw there was financial value in her story. People bought it because they wanted it to be true. So for well over 100 years, the Botula people heard their island, their paradise, referred to by the name of a person who caused them direct and irreversible harm after they helped her survive. The push to give the island its name back went on for a long time until it finally happened in 2021. In spite of the displacement and the attempts to assimilate the surviving Botula people, many remained living in the area, and Monique had the gift of growing up with her family where their ancestors had lived for thousands and thousands of years. Monique's family was very close, and she was a natural leader, even as a child. She would always be organizing her siblings and cousins into games and adventures. She was very athletic, very active. She loved things like trail running, especially. Monique was also, as one of the older kids, an extra set of hands with the younger children, a caretaking role she would continue as an adult. She worked at a local tavern while she lived with her mother, Sheena, and when she had this income of her own coming in, she would often spend her money on her siblings. Monique was always a good student with a really outgoing personality and a solid group of friends in high school. Everyone really expected her to go places. But then, Monique was in a car accident, a very serious one. Her back and her legs were injured, causing ongoing pain. As she recovered, her doctor prescribed her pain medication that Monique became addicted to. When the pain medication was taken away, Monique did what a lot of people do and turned to street drugs. And this led her into circles with people who were not like her tight-knit group of high school friends. Petty crimes and minor arrests followed, and as you can imagine, her family members were very concerned about the situation and about the people Monique spent time with. Two of the times Monique was arrested, she spent so much time in pretrial detention, over 100 days both times, that she just pleaded out to a lesser charge in exchange for time served so she could just go home. The most serious charge Monique ever faced, she wasn't convicted on. It had to do with robbing a taxi driver at knife point. It's kind of a long story, but in the end, her boyfriend told the court that he was the one who did this. And the entire time, though Monique was with him, she was trying to de-escalate the situation. She was trying to get him to stop. The article I read about this in the papers made it sound like you were supposed to view this as this man taking a fall for Monique, but I see no reason why we shouldn't believe it happened the way he said. Everyone in Monique's life, her family and her friends, all said that she was very loving and funny and she was a big personality. She wasn't a violent person, and it makes sense that in that situation, she would be the one trying to calm things down. Now, the reason I'm bringing up Monique's criminal record isn't because it has anything to do with her going missing, but her family does believe it may have influenced the police's response to her disappearance. And if they didn't view her as a petty criminal slash drug addict, they may have tried harder to find her. And perhaps if the media didn't view her as a woman who got away with crime because her boyfriend took the fall, they would have pushed her story more. So let's get into the details of Monique's disappearance. While most of the names I'm using have been released publicly, I will only be using first names at this point. No one has been named even a person of interest, in this case, let alone a suspect. On June 20th, 2013, 24-year-old Monique left on a trip with three of her friends, Tracy, Allen, and Leighton. Monique told her mother that they were headed to Brisbane for the night. As far as Monique's mother, Sheena, knew, the plan was spontaneous and there was no real explanation for it other than that they had some free time and they wanted to get a change of scenery. These three friends were among the ones her family didn't know well, and they weren't necessarily fans of them. So her mother did have a bad feeling about Monique going at all, but she was 24. How was Sheena going to stop her? What Sheena didn't know was that they had plans to go to Caboolture, which is north of Brisbane, to buy fentanyl patches. Monique's friend Tracy was driving them, She was only visiting Harvey Bay and was headed to her home on the Gold Coast, so the plan was for her to drop Monique Allen and Leighton off in Deception Bay, which is north of Brisbane, on her way. Tracy left them at a McDonald's where the three waited to meet with a drug supplier who was selling them the patches. According to the evidence given at the inquest, they waited there for five hours before the seller called and said, The box of patches he had had already sold. So Alan called a family member who lived in the area who said that he and Leighton could come and spend the night. Monique told them that she had someone coming to pick her up and then gave Alan some cash in case he did find a source of fentanyl patches. Monique was then picked up by a man named Dominic, who Monique didn't really know well, but he was the boyfriend of a friend. The next day, on June 21st, Monique and Dominic went over to the house Alan and Leighton were staying at. Dominic and Monique then drove Leighton to the train station around 11:30 in the morning. CCTV confirmed this, and he took a train back home while Alan stayed with his family. Over the course of this day, the 21st, Monique used her phone multiple times. She called Alan twice, and he said that she had told him she had a lead on where they could buy some patches. It was at a place called Kangaroo Point, which is an inner suburb of Brisbane. Monique also texted a friend named Sean that she was in Brisbane, she was hungry, and stranded. When he called her, she explained that she ended up stuck in the city, and he said he would pick her up if he could borrow someone's card to do so but he didn't find a way to get to Monique. That night, a man named Bryce did see Monique outside of a men's homeless shelter in South Brisbane. He was able to get her a blanket and some food. She told him that she was staying down the road and Bryce said that this was the first time he and Monique had ever met. On the morning of the 22nd, Monique called her mother Sheena and said she had stayed at Dominic's house, and they were trying to get money to pay for gas so Dominic could drive them home. Tracy had initially intended to come back north and bring everyone back to Harvey Bay, but she realized she didn't have the means to make the four-and-a-half-hour drive between her home and Monique's home again. This phone call did make Sheena a little uneasy because Monique was stuck three-plus hours away from home without a ride, and she was separated, it seemed, from the people she had traveled down there with. But Sheena didn't have any way to help Monique, so she just had to stay home and wait for her. At some point, Monique called Alan. According to him, it was in the morning, and Monique said that a man was going to call him, and he should say that Monique left her handbag in his car. Alan agreed to do this even though he wasn't entirely sure why. And just as Monique said, someone did call him and ask about Monique's handbag. Alan told the man that he had the bag even though he didn't. The man asked Alan to look in the bag and see if it had a box of cold and flu tabs. Alan again lied and said, yes, it did. This exchange has not been fully explained, including who he was having this conversation with, but Alan told the inquest that he believed at the time that Monique was just lying to some guy to get some money pretending she had drugs, but they weren't with her. They were in some friend's car. To him, it sounded like a low-level scam. At some point after Monique had talked to Sheena, she and Dominic drove to the shelter to pick Bryce up. Dominic then dropped both of them off at the train station. They took the train to the Park Road station where they both used the public phone, but it's not clear who Monique called. After this, Monique's friend Tasha, who lived back in Harvey Bay, got a text from Monique that said, Hey, can you help me out? I'm in Brizzy sick. Natasha was a friend who Monique used drugs with, and she knew how severe Monique's withdrawals could be if she didn't use. Opioids are hard to get off of because of this. It isn't that you just don't get high if you stop, you actually get sick. It seems Natasha assumed this was what Monique meant by sick. Natasha's husband had planned to buy two of the fentanyl patches Monique was supposed to get on this trip. And he told the inquest that if Monique needed help getting home, she could have asked them for the money and they would have sent it. He also believed Monique would have known this because she would have known how eager he was to get the drugs. But Monique didn't ask for a ride or even help with a ride when Natasha and Monique talked on the phone after the text. Instead, Monique told Natasha that she went to Beanley by train with a man and then asked Natasha a question about the buses in one of the southern suburbs of Brisbane. Natasha didn't know anything about the buses. She also asked Natasha if she knew where Monique could get some Ritalin because the man she was with was quote, going ballistic. Natasha could not help Monique with this either. The police were able to confirm that what Monique told Natasha about taking the train to Beanley was true. At 11.36 a.m., Monique and Bryce took the train south to Beanley, arriving at 12.10. Surveillance cameras recorded them walking away from the station and towards a shopping center. In the CCTV footage, Monique was wearing sunglasses and a scarf wrapped around her head. The scarf was worn somewhat tightly, just covering her hair, so it looked initially to me like she had wrapped her hair. However, her family has indicated to the media that this was not something Monique usually did, which makes you wonder why she did it that day. The scarf and the sunglasses combo does make it look a little bit like a disguise when you figure This wasn't how Monique usually dressed. She was also wearing an unbuttoned coat and a blue shirt. The coat does look heavier than you would expect, given the temperature. It was around 20 degrees Celsius, which is 68 Fahrenheit. But I think that is relative, maybe 20 degrees, particularly if there was a breeze, felt cooler to her. I think what happened with the CCTV snapshot was that it was the only clue really released to the public prior to this inquest report. It was released because it showed what Monique looked like on the day she was last seen, so maybe it would jog a witness's memory. But when we look at it, and I do mean we because I'm including myself in this, we're hoping for some type of answer or some deduction we can make from this photo that might bring some answers but there really aren't any in that still frame. For about 15 minutes after leaving the train station, Monique and Bryce were at the shops until 12:38 when Monique went into a medical clinic. This wasn't a walk-in clinic, but they often had same-day appointments from what I can tell online. Bryce waited while Monique was in there asking to see a doctor. Rather than giving her own name, Monique gave her mother's name. Monique's reason to see the doctor was that she was away from home and had a slipped disc in her back. She said she was experiencing pain and wanted some type of relief until she could get back home to her own doctor. Though the doctor at this clinic had some reservations, which we'll get into later, she ended up prescribing Monique diazepam, which is also known as Valium, an antibiotic, and five fentanyl patches. After seeing the doctor, Monique went and got Bryce and then went back into the pharmacy to pick up the prescriptions. However, she only filled the fentanyl one. At 2.24 p.m., Monique called Alan and told him she had patches. This was the last time Monique ever used her phone. Phone records show several phone calls that were unanswered after this. There were also text messages. These came from Ellen, her mother, and Dominic. But this was not the last time Monique was seen either by people or on CCTV. At 2.27, Monique went into the bathroom, likely to use the patches. Monique was an intravenous drug user, and she would use the liquid or gel medicine from the patch to shoot up. When the police saw this CCTV footage, that is what they assumed she was doing in the bathroom. Bryce said he waited for Monique, but after she took a while, he left. He was seen on CCTV at the Beanley Station at 2:50 p.m. and then getting off the train at the South Brisbane Station at 3:30. He was alone at 2:35. While Monique was in the bathroom, Alan called her, but she didn't answer. At 2.55, nearly 30 minutes after entering the bathroom, Monique was seen on CCTV leaving, and she was alone. She went into a shoe store where she was acting erratically, according to the employees. Four minutes after she entered, a staff member sent a message to security to come and remove a drunk woman from the store. It took security a few minutes to get there, in which time he got a second text saying to come ASAP. So when the security guard got there, the staff pointed out the woman, but Monique walked out at that point. She was heading towards the shopping center's food court, but then she exited the center heading east. The store employee said that Monique didn't steal anything, but she had been acting inappropriately and she had cursed at other shoppers. The security guard went out towards the exit to see if he could see Monique and make sure she was leaving, but she had already left. He walked along the side of the building until he got to the area overlooking Hugh Mune's Park the guard saw a group of people and one of them told him that he saw a young Aboriginal woman jump over the concrete wall into the park and that she was heading towards the creek. The guard looked out to the creek and saw Monique walking through it. She did stumble at one point, but the water was only about a foot deep as far as he could tell. He did not see her make it all the way across. She was standing in the creek when he turned to head back to the store. He did tell the inquest that as he saw her walking away, she didn't look intoxicated to him at any point. This was the last confirmed sighting of Monique. The guard said she was carrying a large bag, and contrary to some reports I saw a few years ago, the inquest determined that this bag has not been found. The guard went back into the store and they told him that Monique had left her wallet behind. It had a bank card in it and an ID card. So he put it in the lost and found. No one came to claim it until the police showed up and took it during their investigation. There were early reports that there was also footage of a woman at the Beanley Shopping Center who was running through the parking lot, apparently fearful, and that footage has never been released. While the woman's description broadly matches Monique, the quality of the footage was just not good enough to be sure it was her, and it doesn't match what the security guard said happened, which was Monique walking away. While all of this was happening in the Brisbane area, Monique's family was blissfully unaware. They were home just waiting for her, figuring she would show up as soon as she got a ride, just like she said. Monique was someone who was always in touch with her family. She even called her mom when she realized she was going to be in Brisbane longer than planned. So when Monique didn't come home or call the next day or the day after that, they knew something was wrong. They kept calling her cell phone without any answer. They watched her Facebook page for her to post something, but she never did. They reported her missing on June 28th and the investigation began the first thing the police did was run proof-of-life checks, running all her bank accounts and things like that to see if anything was active. It was not. They then tried to track the area she was last in since they knew she had left home to go to Brisbane and didn't return. The investigation led them to the Beanley Shopping Center and to that security guard. Past that, it was a dead end as far as where Monique had gone. The family told me back when I talked to them in 2020 that the police were able to access Monique's social media accounts, but all they heard back was that there were no leads. They didn't have any specifics. With this lack of information from the police, it was hard for the family to feel confident that they did much to look for Monique or even took the case seriously. The Queensland police said they retraced Monique's travel to Brisbane and tried to find where she went after her friends left. And thanks to the inquest, we do know exactly what they did do to find Monique. And we can break the investigation into three broad areas, phone records, CCTV, and then searches of the humans park. I asked Monique's family about cell phone pings and records and tracing two years ago. They said they did ask the police if they could do that, but at that point, they hadn't heard from them what, if anything, they did. At the inquest, we learned that the Queensland police were not able to do this. They were able to pull phone records and pinpoint the last call made, but that was a call to Allen that we know was made before the last sighting of Monique, so it didn't help give any new information. It only confirmed what was already known, that she was at the shopping center. In Queensland, the police are legally allowed to send a text message to someone's phone for the sole purpose of triangulating and finding them in certain circumstances. There needs to be a grave and imminent danger. Monique's case at the time did not meet that qualification. The investigators also said there was not a reasonable chance it would even work. Monique had last used her phone on June 22nd. She was reported missing five or six days later and her phone battery would likely have died in that time. This triangulation only works if the phone is on to receive the text. The sergeant who testified about this at the inquest did say that if he knew Monique had likely taken drugs, right before she went missing, he may have viewed her situation as grave and imminent, but it still doesn't change the fact that her phone was probably off. As for CCTV, the police did pull some from the Beanley station to see if Monique had gotten on a train later that day. They did not see her. It's not clear, however, how long they looked. They said they watched the CCTV into the evening hours of June 22nd. But the log indicated they only went to 3.30 in the afternoon, which would have been shortly after Monique was last seen. If this is true, it means they only checked to see if she went from the shopping center right to the train station and didn't take into account she may have gone somewhere else in between you might be thinking they could just go back and check how much footage the train station sent them to know how long into the evening they checked. But by the time of the inquest, they had lost that footage. They couldn't even find the request form for the footage, which would have also told them the window of time they had asked for. They also hadn't pulled footage from later that day or the next day around the park and shopping area to see if Monique had left Humans Park. While it probably wasn't feasible to pull and watch all of the security footage for days and days, they could have done it for at least a few more hours. This evidence was gone by the time the inquest happened. In my personal opinion, they didn't pull much of the footage because they did not believe Monique had left the park, and they did conduct searches for her there. This park is not huge, and the front part of it is largely cleared, but behind that area is a heavily treed area where there is also a lake or a pond. There were four searches there in July 2013, right after Monique went missing. This included land searches with dogs, an air search by helicopter, and a dive team in the water. They also went past just the park, into the bush, across the park, along the railway lines. But nothing was found. In November of the same year, the search zone was widened by two kilometers in all directions, and another search was carried out. Again, nothing was found. In 2015, there was a review of the case and a report was created. The report's conclusion was that Monique had overdosed on the fentanyl she had taken that day and died in the bushland in the park. Her remains had simply been missed by the previous searches. But there were some issues with the report and the conclusion that came out at the inquest. The report itself had some inconsistencies with the evidence. For one, it stated that Monique had gotten prescriptions for tramadol, diazepam, Bactrim, and fentanyl patches, and that she had picked them all up from the pharmacist. But Monique didn't do this. She, for one thing, didn't get a prescription for tramadol at all, and when it came to picking them up, she only got the fentanyl patches. The report also said Monique went into the bathroom and then came out and went into the bushland, but she hadn't. She was last seen standing in a shallow creek. There were some other small facts wrong, like saying Monique went into the women's restroom when she had actually gone into the handicap accessible one. Does that really matter to cracking this case? Probably not. However, when a case is reviewed and multiple facts are wrong in the report, it does undermine confidence in how detailed that review was. Two Queensland police experts in search and rescue gave evidence at the inquest and disagreed with the report's conclusion that Monique had overdosed and was in the park. They testified that they believed Monique would have been found on their searches of the park if she was there because these searches over the years were thorough. Not only that, Humans Park is a well-used recreational park, in large part because it allows free overnight RV camping. It seems more likely than not that someone would have found her remains if they were there. They also disagreed with the idea that Monique had overdosed. For one thing, the investigators were basing that on this fact in the report that she had all these other drugs on her, which was erroneous. Had she overdosed on the fentanyl that she had taken in the bathroom, she wouldn't have made it out of the bathroom. Fatal overdoses happen in minutes or even seconds. Instead, Monique walked out of the bathroom, she went to the shoe store for at least 10 minutes, and then she walked into the park. That is in no way medically consistent with what happens with an overdose. Instead, the experts testifying at the inquest said they believed Monique had very likely met with someone either at the park or shortly after leaving it and may have left the Beanley area entirely. One of the sergeants testified that had he been on the case from day one, he would have pulled more CCTV from the area, as well as checking other forms of public transportation like buses and taxis. The inquest also brought up some tips that had come to the police through informants. A number of people gave the same tip, that Monique was killed at the order of a man named Vincent in retaliation for a previous robbery. Allegedly, Monique and her boyfriend James and another man had robbed this guy Vincent two years before Monique went missing. But Vincent apparently hadn't learned they were the ones responsible for the robbery for a while. And when he did, he sent people out looking for them. When Monique and the other two learned about this, they decided to go to Vincent and try to resolve things. This was in April or May 2013, so about a month before Monique went missing. When they reached out, Vincent told them to come over. They arrived at the house and Vincent, allegedly, greeted them with a semi-automatic rifle. He led James out into the bush behind his house at gunpoint. James believed Vincent intended on killing him, but James had his own weapon with him and pulled that out. He managed to get away without injury to him or to Vincent. Not long after this, James and Monique found out that some men who were armed showed up at a house looking for them. Clearly, nothing with Vincent had been resolved. Vincent was interviewed and denied any involvement in Monique's disappearance. The police did search his home, they found nothing there, and they also had evidence that Vincent was in the Tin Can Bay area, which is a good two and a half hours north of where Monique was last seen. Another person with a tip was a woman named Christina. In October of 2013, four months after Monique went missing, she spoke with the police in a recorded statement. She said she was in the car with a man named Daniel when he took a purple suitcase out into the woods along with a bag of what appeared to be women's clothing. According to Christina, she believed Monique's body was in the suitcase. She even took Sheena, Monique's mom, out to where she saw Daniel bring the suitcase. But the story Christina gave at the inquest was not the same. She denied pretty much everything she had previously said. She did say there was a suitcase, but that it was full of clothing. So that is the bulk of the evidence the coroner heard in regards to Monique's last movements, the police investigation, and the tips that came in about what may have happened to her but an inquest looks into all possible contributing factors to someone's death. So the coroner also heard testimony about how exactly Monique so easily got access to legally prescribed fentanyl patches. I know at least in the U.S., the opioid crisis has been fueled by the overprescription of these drugs. It's awful here because doctors are now swinging in the other direction and people who do need these medications for severe chronic pain conditions, are having a harder time getting them. From what I've been reading, it seems like it was a similar situation in Australia. In fact, that's how Monique became addicted to begin with. She was in a bad accident and was given heavy pain medication. The five fentanyl patches Monique was prescribed cost less than 6 Australian dollars total, yet would have sold for $50 to $100 each each on the street. The medical clinic Monique went to was somewhere she was familiar with. In March 2012, she went and was seen complaining of pain. She went back again about two weeks later and they put it in her chart not to see her again due to suspected drug seeking. So in June of 2013, over a year later, Monique went again and didn't give her own name. She gave her mother's name, and no one seemed to notice that this 24-year-old was passing herself off as someone 20 years older. Monique was examined by the doctor, and while she was in the bathroom for a urine sample to rule out a UTI, the doctor went to the front desk and said she suspected Monique was doctor shopping for medication. She asked the receptionist to distract Monique while she made a call, to make sure her name wasn't in the system for this issue. Of course, Monique gave her mother's name, so it wasn't flagged. The receptionist told the pharmacy that they needed to see Monique's ID prior to giving her medication. That's when Monique left, met up with Bryce, and returned to the pharmacy. Afterwards, the pharmacist told the receptionist that Monique told her that she had already shown her ID to the receptionist, and that's why they went ahead and filled the prescription. But the receptionist had not seen an ID, and that's when she went to the doctor, and they concluded that Monique had likely used a fake name to get the fentanyl patches. The doctor who prescribed the drugs also testified at the inquest, but she didn't actually remember treating Monique. She had to rely on her notes from the time. She did acknowledge that she overprescribed. At most, she should have given Monique one low-dose patch for her back pain until she could get her medical records. And possibly not even that, since fentanyl patches are not very effective for treating the type of pain Monique claimed to have. But the doctor did prescribe these patches, five high-dose ones, along with 50 sedatives. This is exactly what they mean when they say legal prescriptions help fuel the crisis. After all of this information was presented to the inquest, the coroner made a number of findings and recommendations, and the first one is heartbreaking. The coroner found that Monique Irene Club is deceased. Her family believed she likely was. She was just so close to them, and she would not have gone years without contact but it's still hard to hear that from someone else. She also found that the cause of death was undetermined, but that based on the evidence, Monique did not overdose in the park. She did not believe Monique's remains were in the park. Between the massive searches, as well as how much traffic the park gets, she would have been found. Instead, it was likely Monique died shortly after leaving the park. She likely died in the Beanley area or possibly in Brisbane. The coroner then found that the prescriptions written for Monique were not appropriate. The coroner did point out some issues with the investigation into Monique's disappearance and presumed death. She said the police seem to be working on inaccurate information. They believe that Monique was running intoxicated into the bush, but that's not what the security guard said he saw. He saw her walking, he said she didn't seem intoxicated, and she was standing in a small, shallow creek. No one saw her enter the woods. The police also didn't speak to anyone from the shoe store directly, and that's unfortunate because they were the last ones to talk to Monique. The coroner said that due to jurisdictional confusion, there just wasn't a point person or a clear lead investigator. This person would have had everyone report to them and they could then see the bigger picture and take a critical view of what was happening, but they didn't have this. There was no one who was watching out for these gaps in the investigation, like pulling enough CCTV footage or talking to the shoe store employees. The coroner also pointed out that they didn't check the phone at the Park Road station that both Bryce and Monique used. They don't know who Monique called. They also didn't pull records for any of the people who Monique spoke to on June 22nd, the day she went missing it's possible following any of those trails would have led to someone else who was possibly planning on picking Monique up from Beanley that day. They also missed the opportunity of looking at other CCTV like buses, train stations in the area, and area shops. They didn't look into taxi records to see if Monique maybe got into a cab. And without someone overseeing the whole of the investigation, these pretty big gaps were missed. The coroner said that the investigation effectively stopped when they decided, based on this inaccurate and incomplete information, that Monique was in the park. That was back in 2015, two years after her disappearance, when more could have been done. But by the time the inquest started in 2021, a lot of that evidence was gone. The coroner recommended that the police develop future procedures that would avoid the confusion over who was taking lead when they had a missing persons case that spanned multiple jurisdictions and multiple units. She also recommended that the police look into using more sophisticated phone locating systems. This inquest gave Monique's family and the public a lot more information about what happened and what was done in the investigation but it has not brought an answer as to where Monique's remains are or what had happened to her. At the time I initially recorded Monique's case along with the murder of Lois Roberts, I said that there was no national figure for missing indigenous people in Australia overall. Three states, Queensland, New South Wales, and Western Australia did track these stats, but the other states and territories did not. There is still no national figure, but it looks like there soon will be. When Canada had their national inquiry into MMIW, it really set an example for other countries, both with do's and don'ts. I'm not going to pretend that Canada did everything right, but by doing it at all, hopefully we can build on it and do better in the future. In December 2021, Australia announced it would be launching its own inquiry into missing and murdered indigenous women and children. Unlike the Canadian process, which was run by a commission, the Australian inquiry will be run by a Senate committee. It was actually two senators, Dorinda Cox and Lydia Thorpe, who brought the motion to begin this inquiry. They are both Indigenous women. They have both experienced MMIW issues firsthand within their own families. We've said it before, we can't solve a problem unless we look into the causes of it, and Australia has taken the first steps towards that. In the meantime, if you have any information on the disappearance of Monique Club, you are urged to contact Crime Stoppers at 1-800-333-000. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok.